This is Gilbert Gottfried. This is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. Our guest this week is a screenwriter, television writer, a producer, a recent author, and the director of dozens of popular feature films and television programs. He served as a writer and producer for hit TV shows such as Happy Days, The Jeffersons, The Jack Warden Stara, The Bad News Bears, Mork and Mindy, and the new Leave it to Beaver. He's also directed feature films that have grossed well over a billion dollars at the box office, including Beethoven, Snow Dogs, The Spy Next Door, Jingle All the Way, Leave it to Beaver, Are We There Yet, and the 1994 blockbuster The Flintstones, as well as its sequels, The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas. But even though he's worked with and collaborated with icons like Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jonathan Winters, Gary Marshall, Robin Williams, and Elizabeth Taylor, and met everyone from Captain Kangaroo to Chuck Jones to Groucho Marx. He still insists his greatest thrill in the business was directing me, Gilbert Gottfried, (laughs) in the modern-day classic Problem Child 2. (laughs) But wait, there's more. He's also a showbiz and pop culture historian and one of the world's most passionate and knowledgeable collector of toys, games, and commercial products and other collectibles and memorabilia, with a personal collection numbering in the thousands. And he's even written a new book about it. It's part coffee table book, part memoir called My Life and Toys. Frank and I have been going through the book, and believe me, it's an eyeful. Uh, Please welcome to the show the director who taught me the proper way to take it in the face. Wait a minute. (laughs) Go back to that. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Take a pizza in the face. Take... To get the job in Problem Child 2, he taught me how to take it in the face. And and I've been doing it ever since then to get work. Oh, God. And, uh, and the man who once spent an afternoon with the Lone Ranger himself, the funny and talented Ryan Levan. Well, hello. Thank you. That's a, a, quite an introduction. I, I feel like it's time to sign off. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it doubles as an obituary. <laughs> Welcome, Brian. You're finally here. 
Thank you. Thank, no, I, I, you know, for years, my friend Matt Bierman at Warner Brothers was telling me, you got to listen to the to the show. It, it's right up your area. You'd love it. You'd love it. You know Gilbert. I said, oh, I just don't listen to podcasts. And finally, I did. And I love the show. And uh, you've had so many people <laughs> that I know have worked with, idolize, want to know more about. Uh, so I, I'm very grateful to be on well, and, you're the perfect fit. I believe we worked together before. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Problem Child 2. You're, I, I actually watched the film yesterday in preparation for today. And, and although he's only in two scenes, he dominates. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I, I've heard you discuss how the hell you, Mr. Peabody, who in Problem Child 1 uh, worked for the orphanage, could be the principal of the Cayley Elementary School in Orlando, or Mortville, as we said, uh, in Problem Child 2. And it was just, let's just do it. In the same movie, Amy Yazbeck is playing a completely different part. So That's why not? Right. That's odd. <laughs> well, I remember uh, uh, the, our, our two friends who wrote the picture. Scott and uh, Larry. Uh, Scott Karaszewski and Alexander, two of the most unique talents in the yes. history of uh, of the industry. Scott's birthday today, by the way. Yeah. Happy birthday, Scott. Happy birthday, Scott. Well, Scott and Larry told me when they first started writing Problem Child 2, they wanted to have the entire cast back, all in <laughs> different parts. Like they were going to have me as some crazed ice cream delivery guy, an ice cream truck driver. <laughs> the the principal we... worked well. The principal worked very well. And and the, the most fun was the food fight uh, shot in the bubble room in, in Orlando at, where you describe, yes, you, you took a pizza in the face that I threw. I always throw my own pies uh, uh, so I don't get mad at people who miss. Uh, <laughs> And, 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 I, and I've gotten pretty good, and you took a pretty good one. And, and what you referred to is, is I, I reminded you of the Three Stooges, where, where they would take a beat and wipe their eyes with, yes. with their first two fingers and, and snap it down and then respond. And, and it really yes. it's kind of a Laurel and Hardy kind of thing. Uh, Problem Child 2 was my first uh, feature directing job, my first feature job of any kind. Um, it's, it's very interesting how, how that all came about. Uh, I was doing a show that I hated and would be, soon be fired from the only time in my life I've ever been fired. And uh, the night my father died, we were shooting a show. He was in Las Vegas, and this happened very suddenly. And, and, and my assistant's husband worked in business affairs at Universal. He said, I know this is a bad time. <laughs> but, but they're looking for a TV director to, to do the Problem Child sequel. <laughs> the first one was a mess. I, I know how successful it was, but it was a messy shoot with a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of reshoots and things. And they, want, they already had a date before they had a script to release it at the beginning of June. I, maybe even Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and so they had to back into that date and they wanted to make sure they'd have the film. And so I met with them and it was uh, very fortuitous. John Ritter, I had done that year two pilots for John's company, uh, one of which was shot, which starred Amy Yazbeck, uh, then his co-star, uh, Paramore, and uh, later wife and widow. And Michael Oliver, who you, it's, it's acknowledged there's a lot of trouble with the family. Uh, on the first one, I didn't have 
those problems. Um, I had given his older brother his SAG card in the in the last couple episodes of Happy Days. Oh. In the 11th season, uh, Michael's older brother was cast as the kid that Fonzie adopted. And had the series gone on, he would have been a regular. And I knew them. I got along with them. Uh, Jack Warden, as you mentioned, was a star of the Bad News Bears series that, that we did for two two thirteen episode bursts on CBS. And, mm-hmm. uh, one of the great experiences in my life. And they wanted to shoot it in Orlando, where two years earlier I'd opened, literally opened their studio, established protocols uh, for the last season uh, of Beaver on uh, when it was on TBS. And so, so down there, and the only one I inherited really w- was you, and and, and I had not <laughs> didn't know what to expect, and 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 you just I we said we 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 hit the slate and you just go, and then okay let's uh, all right so that one was pretty good now what about going from that one to this one and and I'm watching it and there's some amazing improvs in there by you in in, in your two scenes especially my favorite is uh sitting next to the busty girl uh in in the tunnel of love boat oh yes uh, in, in the I bubble haven't room forgotten. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 you say when when we get home, I'll put on the Zorro suit, which I have no idea what that means, but I just love it. <laughs> I figured I figured that wasn't scripted. We we were talking off mic about the food fight, and I was and I was on the phone with Gilbert today, Brian, trying to understand what that gelatinous substance was. Methyl it cellulose. Part, it wasn't Methyl something cellulose. naturally found in pizza. Well, like I said, he taught me to take it in the face. Exactly. So uh, that explains that gelatinous, sticky substance. Gilbert, it's a family show. Okay. (laughs) Methyl cellulose uh, uh, certainly resembles the the product that you're used to taking a facial with. But... (laughs) But it, it, it's what they use slime for. And the trouble was, I, I said, can't you put some food coloring in and make it look like cheese? And they tried, but it all just comes out sticky and wet. But no one seemed to mind. Uh, and, and, you know, we used 500 gallons of it in the vomit scene, which luckily for you, you were not involved <laughs> right in. Right at the music. Which 500 of methyl cellulose, I use uh, vegetable soup and Fruit Loops for color and texture. Uh, and oh, we no, make pretty I'll good looking you, vomit. Um, they. The, the one part of the fight scene that the pie fight scene I minded was that it was on rubber. The <laughs> pie crust was rubber, uh-huh. and it was like getting hit in the face with a tire each time. <laughs> well, I, I, I apologize. I'm the one who always throws the pies, whether they be rubber or, or cream pies. Because I'd get too mad at people if they missed, and I now by by the time I did Problem Child Two, I had a lot of experience and knew <laughs> just how far you could extend your arm without getting your fingers in the camera. Is and, it hard to shoot a a, a food fight scene? A, 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 I guess it's a pie fight scene because it's pizza. Um, what we did is we just kind of built it shot by shot, almost in order, so that so that we 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 didn't do a master where everybody went crazy where we had 60 people throwing meatballs and spaghetti and pies and, and, and nap silver. It, it was ugly. Uh, but, you know, we waited until the end. And then we had three, two, right. one, everybody go. Right. <laughs> throwing rolls and French bread. It was, uh, it was a terrific few seconds of film. But the, what I love about Problem Child 2 is it's nothing but big set pieces. And, and, and that was you know, the excuse to do the movie really is mm-hmm. to do the kind of large scale comic destruction that nobody else was doing. Well, tell and us about it. And you were, you were saying 
And and I I I because I grew up on uh, Three Stooges movies. The way to receive the pie in the face, the reaction to a pie in the face, is to milk it. Is to milk it as Stan, as Oliver Hardy did, as Mo Howard did, and you take your two index, uh, two fingers on each hand, and you slowly wipe them and flick it off, and take a moment to to. All right, you did that. Now what am I gonna do? Yes. It <laughs> really, you know, it's it's the two tars, the, the 1927 Laurel and Hardy. Uh, uh, short where you do this to me, okay, then I'm going to do this to you. And yeah, it just keeps it, escalating. Yeah, it always got me in those movies, like the guy would pour something down the other guy's shirt or crack <laughs> an egg over his face. And and it was like uh, considered polite that you waited <laughs> and you uh, had someone take a, pr- a, br- a paintbrush and paint your face with it. And it was gentlemanly. You know, you waited, and then you had your turn to do something to him. I'd like yeah. to say but that Peabody is provoking that fight. Yeah. The family is minding its business, Gilbert. Yeah. And you stand up in the booth and pick a fight with the family. Right. For no right. good reason. Oh, and what I remember being with the hot-looking girl uh, is... That at one point, I think it's the kid throws an olive or a meatball. Meatball. He throws a meatball. And the meatball lands uh, right between her tits. And and me. Or surgically inflated. Yeah, and and me, uh, you know, uh, going with the scene, uh, decided, because at first she just reacts. And then I said, you know, it would be funny if I reached down between her breast and pluck out and 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 I I did that scene about like I think 50 times yeah. nice work no about daintily daintily your, your, your fingers you know, like you were having English tea it's <laughs> waving you away the deeper you go T- tell us about warden Brian because you had worked with him previously as we said in the intro in the bad news bear show yeah and and uh, I, everything we've heard we had Amy here. Uh, last year, uh, that the guy would tell stories that he was a raconteur. Oh, and, and what? And he experienced everything. Uh, the best times with Jack were at the end of the day, uh, when when you know the kids were doing their close-ups, and he got a break, and we'd go to his trailer, and he'd pour a couple fingers of scotch, and, and tell great stories about New York in the fifties, and mm-hmm. and talk politics. You know, I some we were in there, I think a couple of other guys, and we were talking about politics, and somebody, well, what's the difference between a Republican and a Democrat, anyways? And Jack goes about fifty grand a year. <laughs> He was he, great. He was, uh, he was wonderful, and, and it, the kids frustrated him to no end. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> great. But, but at the last rap party, him and Jack Swain, this crusty old uh, DP who, who shot the show, uh, they were sitting there at the table, and they're literally crying, oh, the kids, the kids, we're going to miss the kids. <laughs> and, and it was a great pleasure. To, to be with him again on Problem Child 2 and Problem Child 3, which we wrote him a great scene. You know, Jack was a boxer mm-hmm. uh, er, er, uh, early in his life. And we wrote him a scene where he's, he's, he's literally sparring with his housekeeper, his Hispanic housekeeper. <laughs> and, and he was hysterical doing it. But, you know, we had to rehearse the moves, you know, for the camera and stuff. By the time, by the time we actually got to shooting, it was kind of spent. <laughs> 
He was 83 at the time. And he'd, done, and he'd gone about six rounds by then. <laughs> How great is he in the verdict? Uh, we were talking but, about Lumet before, before but, we but, turned you know, on the mics. But, you know, sometimes Jack had trouble with his lines, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and then I see him in these Woody Allen movies, and, and, you know, it's a single take, and he's got four pages of dialogue, and there he, there he was fine with me. <laughs> I was like, line? I took it very seriously. I did. I, I wanted it to look like a live-action cartoon. There's nothing but primary colors. Mm-hmm. If you've seen Problem Child 2 or 3, we kept the same uh, production designer and the same concept. Uh, but the relationship between the kid and 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 Ben was was definitely based in, in in love. The kid found love, and he didn't want to share this guy with any and anyone who was a threat. He took care of him, and and in doing so, it set up all these huge set pieces, uh, and, and and which was a challenge, comedically and and creatively, and that's what I love about the film. And I ask another. Uh, Gilbert and I were talking about another famous cameo that comes at the climax of the film, and that's Buffalo Bob Smith, one of your childhood heroes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Howdy doody. I was at the the, the show I previously referenced where I was being fired from was because uh, we we did an episode where the three sisters uh, each pursued a a forgotten dream, and the oldest one was to meet Buffalo Bob, and, and the network took such umbrage at this that we were going in the wrong demographic direction. That uh, that I was I was relieved of my duties because uh, obviously I wasn't steering the show in the right direction. And so strangely enough. So now a month later, I'm starting Problem Child 2 and I suggest Buffalo Bob. We were shooting in Orlando. He lived in St. Petersburg mm-hmm. then most of the year in Maine during the summers. And uh, and they thought it was wonderful and subversive. <laughs> In the so film, in the film department. <laughs> so great. So he shows up in, in his big uh, El Dorado Cadillac with howdy doody license plates, and, and I and the night before in the hotel, I, I left sent him a bottle of champagne uh, with the card that just read howdy doody Buffalo Bob, and and I'll never forget uh, when I heard he'd arrived and was headed for makeup. I, I headed for the trailer. I, I opened the door, and you know he's facing the mirror, and he sees me in the, the reflection. And he goes, I know who you are, and he gets out of the chair and he gives me the envelops me in this hug. I, I couldn't I couldn't That's believe great. it, and you know I literally and I, and I said this in the way that literally felt like I was five years old. And the couple of days I spent with him were were joyous and fun, and I got to ask a lot of questions. Uh, the last one of the few remaining projects on my plate is something that we started 20 years ago with uh, uh, over, over at Amblin, which is the backstage history of Howdy Doody with David Goodman, uh, president mm-hmm. of the Writers Guild, and uh, da- producer David Kirshner, and uh, and we're still interested in pursuing that again. But uh, I-, I loved I loved the show. It was a gateway drug to my career. Yeah, and and, and the and the book. <laughs> truly, we should, truly, we should point out to people too, and you know that it, this meant so much to you to be hugged by this guy who was a childhood hero. You, uh, growing uh, up in Chicago, you grew up on Pinky Lee and Soupy Sales, and and uh, and Captain Kangaroo and Howdy Doody, and all all of these people meant so much to you. And, and we'll plug the book throughout. But if people get the book, they will see the connection. Oh, it, it, it's obvious. Uh, you know, my work is so reflective of the shows that I watched as a kid and 
you know, strangely enough, ended up working on Leave It to Beaver for God knows, like, like uh, totally from from the time we first had a meeting until until the uh, the movie came out. It, it's <laughs> it's uh, like fifteen years uh, yeah. that I was deeply involved with them and to do the Flintstones, and those are shows that I was I was in front of the TV watching their debut episodes and to years later to be woven into the fabric of the franchise uh, was exhilarating and fun. And, and, and it just transported me and everyone who worked on, on those shows felt the mm-hmm. same way. They really mm-hmm. did. It was, they you're, were very you're a filmmaker who got to live out, you know, live out childhood fantasies yeah, by, yeah. by bringing the things that you loved as a kid to, to life. To an, an, another form of life. Talk, talk about the Flintstones too, because your toy collection plays a role in you getting that gig in the first place. Yes, as you, uh, as you mentioned in the book. I so after Beethoven, which which followed directly on the heels of Problem Child Two. I hadn't even finished the film, but I was not the original director of Beethoven. I should add, uh, they had a director who I won't name, but who was. He never made a shot of the dog in, in a week and a half, and they finally noticed it. And the reason was he had a psychological – he'd been mauled by a dog like two years before. He had 350 <laughs> oh stitches in his arm. And he just uh, they said, okay. And then it became, who can we get really cheap to replace? And there was a, a couple very nice scenes with the dog in Problem Child 2, so they brought me in. And I met with Ivan. I met with Groden. And, you know, I read the script on Wednesday, and Monday I was shooting. But after that – uh, you know, there was, what do you do next? And who knows? And I, I heard that they were looking for someone to do a rewrite on the Flintstones. And I, I called my agent and said, please throw my, my hat in the ring there. That would, be, that would be fantastic. And they said, sorry, they've already got a writer. But would you be interested in taking a meeting as a director? <laughs> and, and, and for the next two weeks, I was nuts just thinking about it, watching, watching it, and, and thinking about how you would translate two D to three D, and mm-hmm. and how real to make it, and how and how cartoony, and, and, and where that line was. And I, I met with Stephen and Kathy Kennedy during their a lunch break from shooting Jurassic Park on the back lot, and for the first ten minutes of my meeting. I talk like, like this. And they seemed to, to, to be used to people talking to them like that. They really did. Uh, and finally, I said, pull yourself together. And I got around to showing them a Polaroid. That's how long ago this was. Of my then, like, 25, 30-piece Flintstone collection. And then all of a sudden, Stephen's eyes lit up. <laughs> and, 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 and that kind of enabled me to speak about what I would do and how I would approach it, and how I've approached other similar things, like Beaver, and being, you know, so so very specific uh, uh, about capturing what people loved about and, these franchises. And they Frank had the and right I guy. were talking that Spielberg wanted, actually wanted like Jurassic Park-style dinosaurs. Wanted to go the Stan Winston route. Uh, he wanted Stan Winston to do them, knowing that they would be different. I met with the late Stan Winston, who did the Terminator and all the Jurassic Park stuff, and he's brilliant. I did not detect much whimsy in there, and and I, I my, my my kids were watching a lot of Henson material at the time, and and I gravitated towards them, and they made a a, a terrific presentation, uh, financially and creatively, 
and working with the Henson Creature Shop in London and later uh, with the Creature Shop in L.A. was uh, an amazing experience. Uh, it just puts you back in touch with what you had when you were a kid watching puppet shows, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, that suddenly, suddenly <laughs> you accepted the reality and, and you were more concerned about how to, how to make an impact with people with, without, without the ability to, to move, you know, 100% of your body and stuff. So there's a sense of responsibility and a pressure here because you're not only trying to please Spielberg, your employers, but, you're, but you, you as, a, as a kid who grew up on this stuff, you're, you're now kind of a caretaker of this, of this franchise in a way, and you have to please Bill and Joe. Uh, when, when do they come into the equation? When, when, when well, did you meet them? They had they had blessed it a long time ago. The project started basically on uh, what was the name? Always was that yeah, always, always right? With, yeah, uh, when, uh, walking to lunch one day, Stevens passing John. He was probably going to his trailer or something. John was going to eat, and he looks at us like, "You should play Fred Flintstone." To which John told me years later, he thought to himself, "Yeah, and how do you like a knuckle sandwich?" Uh, but, but, but. Uh, so that, they, the Spielberg that, that, had John Goodman in, in his in his mind that, from the very with, beginning. With that, with that in mind, he went yeah. and secured the rights. I see. Uh, they had previously Joel Silver, who uh, Gilbert always used to call me Joel because he thought I looked like Joel Silver. I should only have his money. Uh, <laughs> oh, there was a, there uh, was a one with Jim Belushi in development, right? Uh, with, uh, uh, with Jim and Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. Strangely enough, and uh, and Rick was still interested, and you know we saw everybody in town for the for the female roles. Rosie O'Donnell was my wife's idea and although it's still controversial I thought she was brilliant and funny and original and brought a lot to it and uh Rick was not uh in, in favor of it when he first found out uh you know I mean he he said she should be playing anyone in this movie it's Fred uh <laughs> 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 but, but oh, once he got dear. on the set with her he loved her and they were great together uh, and Halle Berry, uh, you know, I had no idea who to cast. We saw every, every, every woman in town, really. Uh, you know, Teresa Russell, I mean, Teresa Madsen. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, Sha- so Sharon people. Stone turned down the chance to play Sharon Stone. She, she did indeed to do intersection. <laughs> Good choice, Sharon. Uh, you know, she would have had a, another chapter for her autobiography. Uh, and, and you, um, that John, John Goodman, uh, didn't refuse to be in the sequel. Not refused. Not refused. He did not refuse. Uh, after everybody in every airport he ever ventured into only said yabba dabba do to him <laughs> instead of, a, you know, uh, uh, he went to Stephen and, and, and I can just hear him say, please don't, don't make me do any more of these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And, well, wait, and, but wait. we had been prepping. We had been prepping. You know, to do like Back to the Future, to do two and three back right. to back. And right. so that threw a wrench in that. And it took a while to regroup. And we still wanted to do something. And we did Viva Rock Vegas, uh, which was fun and imaginative. and But just never packed the punch with the audience uh, that the first one did. But it does have Anne margaret <laughs> And margaret is not in it. She sings know, in it. That's what I mean. And, and it was great to, to go to her house. And meet her. Uh, I'm from you know two towns over from where she grew up, and and uh, uh, and, and I met Roger Smith, who and Roger Smith was the last 
member other than Roscoe Carnes of the cast of 77 Sunset Strip, who I had never met. So so I finally knocked over Very those good. pins. You could, you could and, check, the, check that box. And, and if you're a member, Anne Margaret used to be Anne Margrock. That's right. That's why we got her. Who else was in Viva, Viva Las Vegas and the Flintstones? Exactly. And actually, she had a cell in her house, prominently displayed, uh, of her on the Flintstones. And and you you had dealings with uh, Hannah Hannah Barbera. That's oh, we didn't get to Hannah. So Bill and Joe, the two of the most incredibly kind, decent people you have ever met in your life. So accomplished. So confident in their abilities and their place in society. Uh, they just carried that with them. And so they blessed the project a long time ago and they came to visit while we were building. We had four, like 18,000 square foot sound stages uh, taken over. We were building, you know, the 6,000 props, costumes uh, uh, and vehicles uh, and the sets uh, that, would, that, would, that would take place. You'd do the film completely different. Now it'd all be CGI. But then we built everything. It was mm-hmm. real. And the and, sets are very impressive. And, and I and I Even picked today. them up in Barney's pencil mobile, uh, which was the first car that was finished uh, from Amblin, and drove them across the lot in that to the stage, uh, to, to the stages. And I could tell they expected to be disappointed. And they walked in and they saw <laughs> the houses, the the, the cars, the. Uh, the, the the inside of the houses they saw them they saw them making silverware and and, and the products in, in the refrigerator and they just lit up and became animated if you would and they they were delighted by everything and and I'll never forget um, we showed them the Flintstones bathroom and uh, and Bill Hanna says there's no toilet paper and I, I said to our prop man uh, get, please get a roll of birch bark and mount that there. <laughs> And 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 they and we came out into the sunlight after going through all the sets, and and Joe Barbera shook his head and he said, "Never in my life did I ever expect to see anything like this." That's great. And and and, and I said we were just getting beginning, and they were in the film. They yeah. loved it. Uh, Hoyt Curtin, who did all the music for Hanna Barbera, and is one of the true stars in the yes, Hanna Barbera universe. The great Hoyt Curtin. We shout him out on this show often. Uh, he 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 was he was just so great. And so enthusiastic. And the and Jetsons theme. <laughs> with, yeah. with, which, what, the last note is a note that doesn't exist, and that's what he wrote. <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. What? And, uh, go ahead, Gil. You, you, had, you had dealings with Groucho Marx. I, I did. I, I, I did, and uh, it, it's, not, it's not my favorite story. <laughs> well, we should, no, we should, I idolized, we should point out it's, like, it's in the like book. Like you guys do. Yes, okay, yeah. yes, it's yeah. in the book. Yeah. So I'll tell you all about it. Uh, I loved Groucho. Uh, there was a moment in, in, when I was a junior in high school watching uh, at the circus in the scene where uh, Chico and Harpo are searching for something in the strong man's a uh, little little compartment on the train, and they're they're throwing feathers all over, and all of a sudden, you know, they turn on the fan, and Harpo all of a sudden has got a belly and and and, and a beard of feathers, and, and he's doing Santa, and it was this this moment of, of incredible imagination that really locked me so firmly 
into my career and what I wanted to do. And they were, remain such a, a huge influence in my life. And I had the opportunity to see Groucho uh, very, I think it was in the, in the, I think it was maybe 1971 or so. He came and spoke at Northwestern University, a uh, thousand people sitting on the gym floor, and he was relaxed and wonderful and funny and hated Nixon, really hated Nixon. He was great <laughs> about Nixon. That, that was the best part. That's great. Um, and, and you'd see him uh, popping up on Dick Cavett in, in places, and, and sometimes he could be hysterical and singing Lydia. And, and so when I moved to L.A. to get free records, I wrote reviews for this rock and roll rag, a real rag, uh, some giveaway thing. And I'm telling the editor one day some Groucho stories, and he calls me up next week and said, uh, I called uh, his people, and uh, you want to come with them? I'm going to interview him. I said, would I? And so this is... February 77. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> no I'm that Frank. Frank's a great proofreader. I appreciate it. He's no getting problem. a free one. You're going to have to pay, Gilbert. All right. <laughs> I've earned my book. Yes, you have. Um, and so we, we went up uh, Hillcrest Drive there to Groucho's Wallace Neff, a very, uh, a very influential uh, uh, architect in Los Angeles. Uh, beautiful uh, kind of 50s postmodern house, all white, white floors. And you walked in and there was a hat rack with all of those outrageous golf hats and berets that he'd taken to wearing oh, instead yeah. of the ridiculous toupees that he'd worn previously. And, <laughs> and, and there on the wall was the um, oh, what's his, uh, John Decker. Uh, painting of the Marx Brothers, like as the Dutch masters. He's also the guy, uh, he's one of the guys who took uh, John Barrymore out drinking after he died and painted the picture of W.C. Fields as Queen Victoria. Yes. It used to be in Chasen's. Um, and, and we waited and waited. And finally, Aaron Fleming, his, uh, his gatekeeper, who I didn't even recognize because the only time I'd ever seen her previously was in Woody Allen's Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex. Right. And she was, you know, attractive, had long hair, and she had very short hair and, and was very gaunt. Uh, I've read in other places. She was doing a lot of drugs then. That might make sense. Um, and we were ushered in to meet the great man. And it was the the... the Time in between seeing him at Northwestern and seeing him in his own living room uh, had not been kind to him. Uh, he'd had a lot of medical issues, uh, and the issues were winning, uh, quite frankly, very slow and roomy-eyed. And, you know, and, and, you know, we tried to get it going, and he really wasn't interested. And, and he did get off one spectacularly good joke, though, um, my editor was asking him about, you know, getting started on brought in the coconuts and what a breakthrough mm -hmm. that was for them. And, uh, and, and I, you know, he was, wasn't going very far. And I knew the story about his mother having broken her leg being carried into the theater for the opening. And so I say, so was your mother there? And he looks at me, no, she was in jail. <laughs> and, <laughs> And, 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 and just in that moment, you saw, you saw the speed. You saw a little you flicker. Saw, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he found out we weren't from Rolling Stone, as she had told him, to be the, uh, the day's entertainment and give his, his uh, still considerable ego a sponge bath, I think we could say. Uh, and uh, we left, and I went home and put my head under the covers, <laughs> literally. 
she so she uh, lied to him and said these guys these kids are from Rolling Stone to may, maybe to get him out of bed or to just right. sort of no, make that, him feel you know that was her job that was her right, job sure. to make sure that he answered the bell every day and that he felt needed and wanted and you know and, and part of the conversation you know wow. and, and uh, you know uh, very shortly afterwards he went into the hospital from which he was in for months and, yeah. and really never emerged yeah, uh, uh, I, I, I didn't realize until I was doing research for this, Brian, that they never told him about Gummo's death. No, when he was uh, no, I've read that in a couple he was places in, in rapid decline. Yeah. They, they didn't want to. No, it's you know, it's a sad, it was a sad end uh, for somebody who the headlines of his final days. Uh, he didn't, <laughs> you know, he deserved much better headlines than that. I still think it's an honor to have been thrown out of Groucho Marx's house. I, uh, you know, like you're like Trentino. Yeah. Duck soup. <laughs> Year, years later, years later, it finally dawned on me that you don't get a nickname like Groucho in 1913 for nothing. Right. You know, if, if he'd only said leave and never darkened my bath towels again, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been perfection. Just quick, quickly, quickly, one more thing about Hanna Barbera before we jump sure. off, because Gilbert and I were talking. They told you, or or it was your understanding that the the Flintstones was never a honeymooners knockoff that they were trying to pay tribute to laurel and hardy that's what they insist they insist. i think the evidence says otherwise but, uh, <laughs> no, but they, they were all about silent comedy if you think about sure. if you think about uh their work it is primarily trying to get your next meal to survive whether it's yogi or pixie and dixie right <laughs> and, and all have. these characters and, and tom and jerry and right. that really goes back to Modern times and the little tramp where every sure. scene is is built around trying to feed. They were they were students of, of silent film. Oh, and, and, I, and in the Flintstones, uh, Harvey Corman shows up, but not as Kazoo or whatever that. The great Kazoo. Well, in the first film, he was the voice of Fred's Dictabird when yep. he became an executive. Yep. And and that's where I first met Harvey. Uh, we booked him for that. There was no other choice to be made because uh, we wanted him very much to be part of it. And he comes into the uh, to the uh, he he didn't do the production or pre-record. The Henson puppeteer operated the the bird's mouth uh, and, and and cadence, which I tried to keep you know in the rhythm that I thought would be good. And and then Harvey comes in. And, well, let's we'll be in and out here in two hours, like he used to be doing gazoo, I'm sure. But it took four days <laughs> to match perfectly to to the bird's beak, and it was very frustrating to him at, at times. But in those days, it was just he and I and eating lunch together, and uh, and we got along so well. And I loved him, That's and nice. I loved his stories. And he appeared. Uh, in, in Jingle All the Way for me. That's right. And and then the reading for Viva Rock Vegas, Alan Cumming, who who played the, uh, the great gazoo in, in that film, and Mick Jagged, uh, double role, uh, wasn't with us for the reading. So we invited Harvey to come in and read gazoo, and that was a real treat. And then, I can't remember his name, but uh, in... Uh, I was asked to hire someone to play Wilma's father. I can't remember his name. Uh, uh, he was in a Cassavetti's film, Mickey and Ma. Mickey and Ma, one of the uh, last uh, films. Uh, so uh, Seymour uh, Cassell. Seymour Cassell. Seymour Cassell. And Seymour Cassell was not not hitting the beats. A little behind the beat. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and so I... I 
boldly, uh, because, you know, it was supposed to be a favor to a biggie, uh, I asked to replace him with Harvey, and it was great to spend more time with him. That's nice. And, and, yes. Well, but then, you know, after there was a cast and crew screening, and Harvey was there, and a couple of days later, I, I just wanted to say hi and see how he, how he liked it and stuff, and so Harvey, hey, so, so, so what'd you think? And he goes, up. Oh, Someone just walked in. I got to go. I'll call you back. And he never did. Oh, he never <laughs> so, called you back. <laughs> <laughs> he hit you with the old somebody just walked in. That's right. That's right. Uh, Jonathan Winters, another hero, turns up, uh, in, the, turns up in the Flintstones. The Flintstones. And, you and, and, you know, I, I was, uh, I was uh, sacrificed uh, on the altar of Mork and Mindy for two years. Yeah, I was telling Gilbert. <laughs> uh, 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 as the showrunner... Uh, you know, the fourth and final season where Jonathan was cast as, as Mork and Mindy, the year that they were engaged, married, honeymoon.org. And then Robin laid a, a six foot egg uh, from which Jonathan Winters, their their infant, was hatched. Remember, on Ork, you age backwards. Sure. So, so the elder was like six. Uh and, and, and Jonathan was their baby. And, and it was great fun. And it was very difficult to get him to stay on book, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> but my greatest regret of that whole season was in between scenes and camera changes and, and wardrobe changes and stuff, he and Robin would entertain the audience. And this would go on and on and on. And it was some of the most brilliant stuff you've ever seen. And they, they've, uh, bits evolved with them and were polished over the weeks. So by the end, uh, they, they, were, they were steaming hot. And... and I had microphones there. <laughs> if we had just said, just keep rolling or give it a separate slate that whole yeah. year, we would have had the best, the largest selling double comedy album of all time. I'm convinced wow. of this. And wow. it's just a shame. And it was great working with Jonathan. I really loved him and admired him. And the thing about working with those guys is you, to write for them, you had to learn to think like them. And for somebody who, you know, I don't come from an improv background or anything, but to learn how to train your mind to be so much more open to different, <laughs> different ideas and different ways of approaching humor. Uh, it, it was instructive and, and wonderful and, and with Robin just exhilarating. Sometimes, and, and, did, did, Rob, did Robin did Robin's constant improvs and 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 veering away from the script? Did that test the patience of the other actors in? Uh, uh, no, in, they, they, in Mork and Mindy, they, or they just make, make for longer days. Uh, <laughs> the the crew loved it because you always uh, you know uh, you right. go into get, double overtime to, yeah. to film a show. The <laughs> right. first scene, the first scene, you know, like four or five pages was always an hour and a half. Then then it would speed up some. But you know, Robin one one of his gifts was the most amazing memory in the world, which is maybe how he unintentionally lifted so many jokes from from, from people. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it, but he was never satisfied. If he got a laugh with something on Monday in the reading, he'd say, uh, give me a different one there. If he got a, you know, then on Tuesday, he'd get a laugh. It wasn't enough. I want a different one there. So all week you'd be trying to up your every joke for him. And then on Friday, he'd, 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 he'd let loose with all four or five of them, plus a couple more off the top of his head. And, 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 and the ability to just seize on these uh, out of nowhere. And, and at one point, uh, I remember in the fourth season, Bruce Johnson, the line producer, turned to me and said, that was a line from two years ago <laughs> that he had wow. killed. You know, and it just came out there. Wow. And, 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 
Go on. But John was in the Flintstones, and sadly, I, I did probably one of his last, very last project. He was in uh, our live-action Scooby-Doo uh, uh film for the Cartoon Network, uh, mm-hmm. Curse of the Lake Monster, and the kids had burned down his barn, uh, re- reprising a role that he had played in the cartoon, and the studio wanted the beginning to move faster, and I tried to save him, tried to say, couldn't figure it out, and we cut him, and I felt terrible about it, and finally, when we left the dubbing stage, I said, ah, now I know how to save it, so it was too late. But he had a, I, I went up to his trailer that night, and it was a, it was a long night shoot, and I walk in, I hey, Johnny, how you doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? I'm ready for the big dirt nap. That's how I'm doing. I feel like <laughs> shit. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and so I'm this is going to be a great night. Nap. But it's like as soon as, soon as he stepped onto the set, you know, the, the performer, <laughs> you know, shed <I> his skin, <laughs> this old man's skin. And finally, his son... <laughs> <laughs> had to drag him off the set like three hours later. <laughs> and he, he went on and on and on. And it was, I was a little worried because we had a lot to do and I couldn't really say, okay, let's, let's move on <laughs> while he was still cooking. Right. He was in his, his shining moment. He was. Yeah. And he loved the attention and he loved an audience. And that's why he used to stand outside of Patty's in Toluca Lake every morning and, and just do business for people picking up the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> Gilbert, did you, remember... did you interact with him, with Jonathan Winters? Did uh, you? Me? Yeah, did you cross yeah, paths I, with him? I I never acted with him. I I remember we were we were once doing a, the same show, but we didn't act together. But I remember sitting in the room, and Jonathan was holding court, and I you know I have a habit of daydreaming, so he would always catch me and go, "Hey, Gilbert, zoning out again? Ah, okay. I guess we lost Gilbert again." And and I I remember Jonathan saying, you know, my father used to tell me all the time, uh, don't mess around with women and save your money. And now I have no money, and uh, Mr. Pencil doesn't work. <laughs> no, we miss it. We miss it. And you worked, you were planning on a Munsters, a uh, whole new Munsters. Yes, he, now they just announced that, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. that, that, that Rob, Rob Zombie, Zombie. Uh, that well-known comic uh, uh, entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, he's a regular Preston Sturgis. <laughs> yeah, is going to do the Munsters. And God bless. No, I wanted to, uh, after Jingle All the Way, uh, I woke up one morning literally with, with, uh, with the idea kind of fleshed out in my head for the Munsters Rise Again which would have been the pilot, basically, that they had never done for the Munsters, where they get driven out of Transylvania by, you know, a torch-waving mob, and they're forced to come to America, come to, uh, what was the name of that town? Uh, Anyways, in New Jersey, uh, on Mockingbird Lane in some old decrepit house, which was, I've said, abandoned because there was a ghost of a Civil War traitor and his valet in there who scared people off. And the Munsters were thrilled, and the the ghost kept trying to get rid of them, and the Munsters assimilated. And that, that was their goal, was to assimilate into America, to, to, to have jobs and careers and for Eddie to go to school. And Herman, as it turned out, had a lot of problems as a parent. Grandpa was dating a, a, a black widow. Uh, uh, Marilyn and, and uh, Lily had a, 
had a uh, beauty salon that was uh, failing until the goss discovered them. This, Herman, this all came to you in, in one night? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> a couple times, a couple times things like that have just kind of jumped wow. in, like like uh, full, fully formed. And, and so I put on a, 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 the best dog and pony show of, of many that I've done for Stacy Snyder, the new head of production at Universal. I got the Munster Mobile. They, we had to cart it over from, <laughs> That's great. Uh, from George Barris. I had a special effects guy come and make cobwebs and, and fog, ground fog in my office. I looped a highlight reel of the show, and, 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 I, and, and, and I looped the soundtrack. I brought in my entire Munsters collection. I picked her up, drove her in the Munster mobile, and I pitched the whole story to <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, but Lily. Vanessa Williams is Lily, right? And Dustin Hoffman is grandpa. And uh, she didn't get it. <laughs> well, you know, with, if, 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 if you buy the Frankenstein origin, right, Gilbert, in Transylvania, I guess that Schwarzenegger's accent would make sense. It would. Would, would work. <laughs> and you, in, all, in all those Frankenstein movies, it was always like, you know, one actor would have an American accent, the other would have a Cockney accent, the other would be German. Right. <laughs> Don, Donnie Dunnigan. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Go on. Right. Ha, pa. Uh, yeah, some from Alabama. <laughs> you know, it's it is a shame that the Adams family got their 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 good their, their proper feature treatment and the Munsters never did. Well, and, maybe and, they'll get it now. Uh, now that no one remembers them, right? But, uh, <laughs> you, you, you actually, my favorite part is you having Dustin Hoffman in mind for Grandpa. Well, uh, and you know, at one point, uh, I, I was trying to seduce Steve Stolier, who I know has is, is yeah. been on your show. Sure, we know Steve uh, to do his book uh, about the aged Groucho, and I also thought Dustin Hoffman would be excellent uh, as the seventy-eight-year-old Groucho. You know, oh, Gilbert's got that part sewn up. <laughs> oh. Right, Gil? Old Groucho? Gil, Gilbert does great, old Groucho. Can we can we have a sample? <laughs> he's sip, oh, he, he's yeah. taking a he's taking a sip. Yes. Master you can get, edit that out. Go ahead, Gil. Uh, you know, uh, as G- George Gershwin wrote this song. <laughs> was, uh, everybody works but father. He sits around all day, feet in front of the fireplace, smoking his pipe of clay. Mother takes in the laundry, and so does sister, and everybody works in our house, except my old man. Very Beautiful. good. How, how can you consider yes. Dustin Hoffman when you have this at your disposal? Uh, at your disposal. <laughs> hey, it never went. But <laughs> you know, uh, I love that you mentioned the theme song in the book too. Now you must know Frank Marshall. Of course, that's and Frank's th- father, Jack. Wrote we, the. We just the found that Simpson. out a couple of weeks ago. Oh yeah, no. We feel uh, so Fra- stupid Frank's, for just realizing. He also. It. Uh, uh, played the harmonica on any harmonica theme song you could ever hear. You re- remember too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love too. I love some of your casting ideas too. I loved. Uh, I love Hoffman. Uh, Brad. Brad Garrett at some point. Well, we was tried, Yes, we we had going to be considered year, years for- after the 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 feature uh, went away. I was telling this tale of woe, woe to the Altier brothers who 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 I did the Scooby 
movies with. And they said, well, well, let's take it to the division that's doing all those Beethoven movies. And we did, and they loved it, and we're ready to roll. And then they said, oops, they just gave it to Brian Singer uh, to do right, whatever he Mockingbird did. 13 Lane, Mockingbird yeah. Lane, which yeah. I, I'll never understand. And I love Jerry. I, I did a series of my – but this this one, I, I – I, that. That one was just not from the same orbit uh, as the monsters, no, and not so at we all. lost it there. And then they came back five years later and said, "Let's do it." And we said, "Okay, let's do the let's get Brad Garrett, who did an incredible, incredible imitation of yeah. Herman Munster." Yes, he does. Uh, and, and 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 I thought, well, you, you get Henry Winkler to play Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I love where this is going. <laughs> and, and you know and, what? And it would have it would have been very funny. Gilbert, here's what I learned, too, in, in researching Brian, that they used to recycle Leave it to Beaver scripts as Munster stories. Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you know, Mosher and Connolly, who inherited the show, and I don't sure. think it ever really meant a lot to them as opposed to some of the other things they did, which were uh, much more personal. Beaver yeah. was a very personal show. To, to Mosher and Connolly. And so was Karen, which was part of uh, Bristol Court, which was an anthology series on NBC in the uh, late 50s. Uh, so was, the, the Munsters was dropped in, their, dropped in their lap? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, Ed Haas and Norm Liebman created right. the concept. Uh, who was it? Uh, Alan Burns, uh, and, Alan Burns uh, and, 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 Hayward, Chris and Chris Hayward, yeah. who did Barney Miller and, and Rocky and Bowinkle, uh, wrote the pilot. And then they handed it off to... To Mosier and Connolly, who ran it for its 72-episode run. Yeah. And so, and so so, they were just taking the old Beaver stories. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, uh, Beaver runs away. Eddie runs away. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah. you... Beaver's grandfather grows hair on a bowling ball in the yeah. lab. <laughs> so does Eddie's. <laughs> and um, now, you also hung out with the Lone Ranger. Oh, that's a good story. Uh, Yes, the lone. I had an interaction with the Lone Ranger. I loved the Lone Ranger growing up. I far preferred him to Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, who had this weird show that they made for all those years for ABC, where they were talking on the phone and had phonographs and were riding horses everywhere. <laughs> I, I, I never. When would, when does this show take place? Whatever was convenient. They, they had a jeep. They had a dog. They were trying to hit every demographic. Uh, you know, and, and I never much like Gene Autry. I thought he was soft. But I, I love the Lone Ranger, and you could just you could just tell how laser focused this guy was. And, the, Clay, and, the Clayton. We should point out the Clayton Moore Lone Ranger, not the, the Clayton John Moore Hart. Lone Ranger. Uh, right. He did. He did hold out for a better contract, I think in the third season. And uh, they, they punished him by, uh, by replacing him with John Hart. Yeah. And no one no- noticed the difference for a year, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, but uh, uh, my friend Fred Fox Jr., uh, and uh, whose father, uh, you, you've mentioned uh, his partner several times on the show, Seaman Jacobs. They wrote like 53 episodes mm-hmm. of Dobie Gillis and Oh God with George Burns. They Legendary all writing the, team. Yeah, yeah, wonder, wonderful stuff. So Fred was on staff with Happy Days, and we, we wrote uh, like 13 or 14 shows together, produced the show together. Anyways, he wrote The Lone Ranger Show, and he loved The Lone Ranger, and a birthday was coming up. And, and Clayton Moore's autobiography had come out, and I called Rob Word, who used to run the Golden Boot Awards. Uh, and, and I said, is there any way you can get Clayton Moore to sign a book? 
for, for someone. And he goes, yeah, I'm going up there in two weeks. Why don't you come with me? He lives right near you. Who knew that? And so two weeks passed by, and I was so excited, you know, walking up the, the walkway to his condo in Calabasas. And, and he opened the door. And usually, you know, you say, even Arnold, you know, I saw, oh, Arnold's shorter than I thought, you know, oh, you know. Fonzie's shorter than I thought. Lone Ranger, bigger than I could have imagined. A bit like 6'5", broad shoulders. You know, a little little sandpaper on the voice. He was in his 80s, but it's, it still had that, that resonant tenor. And appropriately enough, uh, he had suffered from horseshoe pattern baldness. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he, he regarded me uh, kind of like, like, like a, a, a cattle rustler. You know, I, I was imposing. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he signed all the stuff for the silent auction uh, for Rob. And then I hand, I bought, got a copy of the book for myself too. And I hand him to him and, and he takes him and he, you know, he, he like literally makes a face like he s- smelled a bad fart, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and he dutifully signs him, you know, Clayton Moore, the Lone Ranger and dates it. And, and he hands it back to me with a, <laughs> like that. And, and I wasn't, certainly wasn't planning on it. And I said, very spontaneously, I said, you know, at the end of every episode, they always said, I, I never got to thank the Lone Ranger. Well, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you for all the hours wow. that, that I spent with you growing up for the morality, for the understanding of racial equality, uh, for, 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 for promoting honesty <laughs> and good and, and right in the law and and, and so thank you, and thank you very much. And, and I offered him my hand, and he had teared up. <laughs> and, and, he, and he goes, oh. thanks, Kimosabi, <laughs> which is more deal. than you could ever ask for. And, right. like, and, and like two minutes later, we're walking out the door, and I got this idiot, shit-eating smile on my face because <laughs> <laughs> a Lone Ranger called me Kimosabi. Uh, and... and and, and we're walking down the walkway, and all of a sudden, he, he pops his head out the door, and he holds his hand, and we go, wait, just one minute, will you? And we stop, and we look at each other, we shrug. And about 30 seconds later, he pops out of the door, and damned if he isn't holding between his index finger and his thumb a silver bullet. Oh. And he looks at it, he starts walking down the driveway, and, and he says... This is my last one. And I thought, oh, my God, I said something nice to the Lone Ranger. He's going to give me his last silver bullet. And I, like, hold out my hand like that movie, The Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) I hold out my hand to take it, and he walks right by me and hands it to Rob Word and says, maybe your son would like it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Still, it's a beautiful story. And you guys, and he called you, you. First of he all, called you got me Kimo Sabi. That's and right. And he called That's you right. Kimo Sabi. It's like you, you could die and go to heaven. I, I, you know, he, he really I, I almost got, did. He but, really got screwed anyway by, you know, poor Well, poor uh, you Moore. know, just remember that, uh, you know, everybody, all the other Westerns, James Garner, Gene Barry, Steve McQueen, yeah. these guys went on to big things, you know, and no one else was left to open the supermarkets and do auto car dealer promotions, <laughs> which by the way, if you've ever said Jay Thomas has the best Lone Ranger story. Oh, we had him tell yeah, it and, here. You did. And, oh, and yeah, years ago. The other thing with Clayton Moore, when they decided to do the Clayton, uh, the, right, the, they, the Lone they forbid Ranger him. movie, they legally put a ban on Clayton Moore dressing up as the Lone Ranger. No, no, he couldn't call himself the Lone Ranger, and he couldn't wear the mask. 
the, the, the powder blue onesie and the hat were not trademarked. So he roamed the country uh, in a pair of, like, Yoko Ono-ish oversized yeah. <laughs> sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that was and, always and disturbing. I, a reporter said to him, uh, if, if uh, it's decided that you can't wear the mask, what are you going to do? And he said, then I won't wear the mask. I'm not going to break the law. I'm the Lone Ranger. <laughs> and he believed it. He believed it. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Hayo Silver. The Lone Ranger. Hayo Silver! With his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains, led the fight for law and order in the early West. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. The Lone Ranger rides again. You know, the Lone Ranger code was stricter than than a kosher kitchen. It's, was it because of the movie, the the, the that, that that terrible uh, legend yes, of the Lone they, Ranger? Yes, they wanted to focus attention not on what they did 25 years ago, but what they had coming out. And they would have been better off <laughs> Yes, yeah. sticking it's a, with it's a, Clayton. It's a beautiful story. Gilbert, I think, wants to call bullshit on the Hannib- on, on, on Bill and Joe, by the way, not only on the Honeymooners, but also them, their claim that Huckleberry Hound was an homage to Keaton. And yes. That it, and it, they, oh, that he, was oh it, look he at the hat. Stealing, the hat. Uh, stealing Huckleberry <laughs> Hounds. Uh, stealing, stealing Andy Griffith's shtick. <laughs> <laughs> And Yogi Bear sounded strangely like Art Carney. Hello there. Hey, 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 boo-boo. Hey, Ralphie. Yeah, I hear that. (laughs) Here's a question from a listener, Brian. A listener? Uh, uh, Jonathan Sloman in the UK. His question is Puchinski. And then he says, oh, sorry, you wanted questions. Puchinski? Puchinski, yes. This is a pilot the year that I did those pilots for John's company. Uh, I did five pilots that year. for, the, And one of them that I was involved in was Puchinski. Uh, uh, David Kirshner would later uh, be the executive producer of the Flintstones and ran uh, Bill and Joe's film operation. Uh, and Lon Diamond, uh, who I'd write the Beaver movie with later on, they had this story about a reincarnated, uh, a, a, police det- a hard-nosed police detective who was played... Uh, who the hell played Peter Boyle. Peter, that's right. Peter Boyle played him. And and he's murdered and he's reincarnated as a crime-solving animatronic bulldog. <laughs> I think and, it's on YouTube. I think people can find it. I, I, I know that people can find it, and I'm going to find a way to eliminate it. Uh, it was, it was number one, number one, you know, uh, I had won, I'd been very successful as a director uh, doing single camera stuff uh, over at Universal. And here I was at Fox on this uh, development, and they didn't want me to direct it. They wanted somebody who'd never shot one camera to direct it. Good move. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so David was very much into, you know, he did Chucky, and he was very much into animatronics as a way to create something that you couldn't. And this was in the days before CGI. And so... Uh, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, which I think Lucas still owned at that point, 
was hired to make the animatronic bulldog puppet. And somewhere along the lines, the blueprints got screwed up so that the legs <laughs> were twice as long. Twi- twice as long. I, I mean, <laughs> they should have been, a bulldog's leg is like four inches. These were like 16. And so when he sat, it was like he was resting his elbows on the ground. Uh, and, and, and then you could only shoot him in a close-up and... It was it was a mess. Uh, it was Why do a mess. I remember and a real dog from the actual pilot? Well, that, that, that... it's yes, but when he talked, when he when he I did see. something, when he reacted to something, and he tilted his head and cocked his ear and, and narrowed his eyes, uh, you know that that was the puppet. Uh, and and you <laughs> you were involved in a legendary showbiz moment in uh, when Fonzie. On happy days, jump the shark. <laughs> oh, he was there. I, I was there. That was, you know, I started writing for Happy Days when I was 23 years old. Uh, when I finished <laughs> working there, I was 31, uh, and and I didn't come in until the fourth season, for God's sakes. And when I did, they were pretty much on top of the world. Laverne and Shirley, their spinoff, mm-hmm. was the number one show. They, you know. They had survived uh, a, a very difficult beginning to become, you know, one, one of those once in a generation uh, 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 mega worldwide hits, and everybody loved each other, and the the finish line was far far away, and it was a great time for the show, and they had scored big in their third season, doing. Um, doing Fonzie jumping garbage cans, and then they had Pinky Tuscadero, sure. uh, the three-parter. And Gary, my mother always used to say, you know when a show's in trouble? When <laughs> when, when they go to Hollywood. Uh, and sure enough, here's my first season on <laughs> sure Happy enough. Days, and where do they start? They're going to Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, Henry had weird athletic skills. He, he, he could dance the kazaka. Is that how you call that Russian thing where you yeah, throw yeah, your arms kazaka, and your legs? Yeah. Very popular at bar mitzvahs. He could do that. Uh, he could fence beautifully, and he water skied. Uh, so Gary was very much into taking advantage of people's skills. And so he came up with this thing that they're going there for a, for a, a screen test for Paramount Pictures, and, uh, and Fonzie's going to jump a shark. And, you know, when I first heard this, when I first heard this, you know, I was the bottom guy on the totem pole. There were a lot of very much older, established people. And, and, and you know, I said to Bob Brunner, the producer, you know, you know, this is, I don't know about this. And he goes, very curt, that's what Gary wants. <laughs> and, and, and so it was done. Uh, and, and I was actually there my first day on set as a, as a writer. You know, every day when we were out on location during that shoot and not on stage 19, a different writer was sent out to, you know, be there if they needed a line. And, the, of course, the day they sent me out, they weren't doing anything on land. They were just in the boat doing, doing all the coverage of Henry. And I watched his stunt double jump a uh, <laughs> jump, <laughs> jump about a 20-foot, uh, you know, what, what are you, just a bunch of buoys, basically, and, and a stock-footed shark uh, that was in, in, put in post. Uh, but Henry, Henry was very, really good on, on water skis. Uh, 
you know, it's very difficult to, to in order to keep him dry. And he's wearing his leather jacket, and he's got his hair all yeah. slicked. And so he had to take off from land. It's very tough on, on a flat lake in Wisconsin. You know, Henry had to do it in the Pacific, and he did that. And his dismount, which is on the film, was even better. He just glided right up to the shore uh, onto, onto the sand and literally stepped out of his, his skis and threw his hands up in there. And that was very impressive. But, but you know, here it is that people, well, this was the beginning of the end uh, of Happy Days. And it, it was and it wasn't because there were so many many wonderful, wonderful shows that eclipsed uh, what was the best of the early shows in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were also uh, seasons uh, where loyalists <laughs> weren't at the helm, and it suffered there. Yeah. And, and, and but, I left Happy Days in the middle of the sixth season uh, uh, because I sold a pilot, uh, Ron Levitt, the later created Married with Children, and I sold Brothers and Sisters. It debuted after the Super Bowl and then was the, the most painful 12 weeks <laughs> it was of a, my a, life. Right, right, and right. And tell us, tell us about Jingle All the Way. Well, it, Jingle is a story of redemption <laughs> in, in, in my life. Because well, I have to say you're very, you're very candid and you're very frank about, about the, the experience in the book. Uh, it, well, it was, it, you know, I, I was suckered into it because I opened up the, the script and it said, and they're manufacturing toys. Now, for a guy who collects toys, That's all it. I could see from that point on was a shelf in my office with Turbo Man and the Booster and everybody and all the <laughs> ancillary stuff. And, and indeed, I do have that shelf today. But maybe I should have been paying more attention to story development and character. Than <laughs> But, uh, it turns 25 this year. I, it Jingle does, all the and, way. and I'm sure, and I'm sure I'll be doing a, a far more public apology uh, in, in some theater in Hollywood. Well, we, we, uh, we should we should point out that you and you you're, again you're very honest in the book. You got a Razzie nomination. You say you went into director's jail. But having said that, it's a film that over time has found a new life and new fans. Uh, and I, 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 yes, it, and it people is. still send you things to sign and. Every, every part, day. part of you wants to run away from it, I would imagine, and part of you now is, you know, you're, you're, you also have to embrace it because it's being reevaluated. I, I, I think, I think re my feelings about the the film are are best embodied in in the the 24 inch Turbo Man that was the object uh, of the parade scene and the conclusion of getting the kid the toy, and. And I always had envisioned, you know, getting a beautiful plexiglass stand for it and having it sit in my office and, and uh, us sharing our life together. And for the next 20 years or so, I left it in a box in the garage. <laughs> and, and finally, you know, I'm on campus a lot. I teach at two schools and I do a lot of speaking. And the only thing anybody ever asked me to sign is their family's VHS copies of Jingle All the Way. And they send me fan art. And there's incredible work that people do. And the affection, I, I got... I got two new Jingle T-shirts this week, for God's sake. Wow. Uh, and and I finally... The, the action figures are expensive. I was looking uh, them up. They're uh, in the box about $750. So one's Drell, sold Trell, some of them are two and three at, grand. At no, no. Uh, those, those, those are copies. <laughs> oh, <trust> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there weren't that many. Um, but, but, you know, it, people love it, and, and I feel much better about it than, than I did. And... Uh, you know, I threw my heart and soul into it. Arnold was great. 
Martin, Martin Mull, you know, <laughs> albums I had when I was oh, yeah. 15. Robert and, Conrad. And Robert Dan- Conrad. I, I was a huge Wild Wild West fan. Sinbad was a ball of energy and great fun. Phil Jim Hartman. Belushi, my buddy Jim Belushi came in. Danny Woodburn, who was later being Viva Rock Vegas. and It's a great cast. Re- remained a, f- a friend. Rita Wilson, who'd been on Two Happy Days. Sure. Phil uh, Hartman, uh, we, we didn't mention. Uh, uh, well, I'm getting to Phil. Uh, Phil yeah. was... I, I love Phil. I first met him. I approached him to do uh, a reading. The Farrelly brothers and I and uh, uh, David Goodman again and uh, who else? A couple other people. We wrote for Imagine a parody of Die Hard called Blowhard. And we did a spectacular <laughs> reading. Tony Danza played the uh, the Bruce Willis role and uh, uh, Lorraine Newman did it. And... Uh, and Phil Hartman came in to play the villain Euro Disney, and he was just Euro he, he, Disney. Euro <laughs> Disney. He 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 just crushed it, and and he came in. He they had sent him in to read for Sinbad's part, and he read it, and it, you know you could see it wasn't him. And so I said, "Look, would you mind? There's another part here. Maybe you take a look at it." And he was kind of reluctant, and, you know, Chris Columbus was there, and so I guess he figured, bad idea not to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so just picks up the scene, doesn't look it over, nothing, just launches into it, and instantaneously we knew that, that he was the right fit, and he recognized it as well. And we had a great time with him, and and what happened to him was so incredibly sad. It was his next to the last uh, thing he ever did. And uh, we never met his wife until the premiere, uh, but he used to speak of her, uh, and those who few who may not know is uh, Phil was murdered by her, and then she took her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always talked about her as trying to get her engaged in activities that he and the kids liked so that they would be together more. Uh, and like like boating, he loved boats. He, he, I've never seen anybody who enjoyed his fame and wealth more than Phil did. You know, one day he drove a brand new Ferrari onto the middle of, of the set and, and go, excuse me, can you tell me where crew parking is? And, he, he, you know, and it was improvising like that. The one where he says to Arnold, uh, you can't bench press your way out of this one, right off the top of his head. Uh, he was he was he was sensational. Everybody we talked to about him, everybody that that worked with him and interacted with him, just says wonderful things about him. He seems <laughs> seems like he was a beloved guy. He deserved that. Terrible, <laughs> terrible tragedy. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor. No, you worked with Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, yes, she was in the Flintstones. Uh, uh, when we were first going through names, um, Kathy Kennedy said, uh, when it came to Wilma's mother-in-law, what about Elizabeth Taylor? And I said, and I said, I've got her at the top of my list, too. And I did, uh, you know, but those, are, you know, that was the only one like the pie in the sky. But finally, we figured out how to get her to do it. And that was we we offered to make uh, the premiere a benefit for her AIDS foundation. And uh, and that uh, turned the key to have her do her first film in 18 years. And uh, the day sh- the first day of rehearsal, uh, the studio put up a banner, welcome back, Elizabeth. And everybody but me on the entire crew wore a tie out of respect. I just couldn't do that. <laughs> and she said, hey, you, know, uh, you know, so what's with you, schlub? You know? <laughs> she, she looks but like she's having the time of her life making that she, picture. She, I think she was very happy to be back on a stage. 
I've observed that people who grew up on sound stages are sometimes more comfortable within studio walls than outside of them. And, mm -hmm. uh, and she was fawned over uh, sufficiently. And the first day she showed up for rehearsals, she was wearing, you know, like a pair of black jeans and a little white T-shirt and, and a hat with a flower on it and no makeup, not a drop. And she was literally one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. She was in her uh, like 63, 64 at the time. And she was just stunning. And her eyes were a color like you've never seen. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of fun. And I did a terrible, terrible thing one day. Uh, we're shooting the scene where, where uh, she's been tied up by the villains and, and Pebbles and Bam Bam have been kidnapped. And so, you know, she's on the floor and our prop man, Russell Bobbitt, is, is tying her hands. And she looks up at him and says, you know, men have been trying to do this to me for decades. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and so we're getting ready to shoot. And, uh, and I'm walking back to the camera, and I get an idea, and I turn around and go, hey, John. And so filled with the idea, I didn't notice that I, her foot, and I stepped right on her barefoot, full 200 pounds, hard oh. on her foot, and she screamed bloody murder. And, and I'm apologizing profusely and, like, feel, feeling so terrible. And, you know, they help her off the stage. 20 minutes, we're sitting there. We don't know what's going to happen. She comes back in on crutches. She's all bandaged up. I go, oh, uh, E.T., I'm so she, she did. She hated to be called Liz, Elizabeth or E.T. And I'm so, what, I, I feel so, I, I can't believe I did that. You know, I'm just wallowing in this. And people start laughing behind me. And she, she was pranking us. She was fine. Uh, uh, see, George Clooney isn't the only one. Pranked by sets. Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> Another yes. honor. A, a bit, almost as big an honor as being booted from Groucho's house. <laughs> Boy, I'm really scoring today. I, here, here's, here's one for you, Brian, from Rob Martinez. Does Brian still remember how to wake up Beauregard Burnside's on the Garfield Goose Show? True Chicago kids of our age will remember. Thanks for, dogs, keeping, thanks for keeping dogs. the spirit of Frazier Thomas, Ray Rayner, and Bill Jackson alive. Well, that's very nice. Uh, yes, to wake him up, he would say, hot dogs, hamburgers, spaghetti, and meatballs. But this was stolen from Howdy Doody. Word for word, that was a <laughs> phrase that they would use with Flub-a-Dub, the uh, combination of seven different animals, a very creative uh, puppet. I, I knew you would remember. I had no doubts. How, how, how can I forget? You know, I, I spent, I spe uh, Garfield Goose in Chicago was the longest running puppet show in history. 29 years uh, it lasted. Uh, Larry Karaszewski. So I grew up, Larry Karaszewski was like, uh, you know, like 15, 16 years young, was still watching it. <laughs> you, know. well, you, you, you made that point in the book that Chicago, you think Chicago filmmakers like Zemeckis and, and John Hughes and people like that were influenced, were similarly influenced by the kinds of television that you guys were all exposed to. Well, it, you know, in Chicago, the after school, let's face it, there's winter, and there's road repair. Those are the only two seasons in Chicago. And so, so you end up in your basement watching after school TV, you know, even when you didn't want to be. Right, right, and, right. And, and the, the combination of Looney Tunes, the Three Stooges, and Lassie, and Leave it to Beaver, and it was this wildness and this kind of grounded family softness that I think is kind of ingrained in all of the Chicago filmmakers work. Paul Brickman, uh, John Hughes, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. Zemeckis, I, I think, I think we're Ramis. all kind of uh, 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 of the same, uh, I don't know what you call the same family of comedy. That's fascinating, and, actually. And I remember, too, watching the Bowery Boys. <laughs> 
See, I, I always felt, I watched the Bowery Boys. They were on Saturday afternoon. Uh, all those monogram features yes, that yes. they did the and cheap, stuff. The cheapies. And, and, and I always felt that they were second rate. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, you know I, when I finally saw Dead End, the movie that the Dead End kids premiered in mm-hmm. with Humphrey Bogart, they were fantastic, and you know it's kind of like neo-realism, you know, with these with these gutter kids, you know, swimming in the East River and shit. Uh, but uh, but but I always I always felt it was so cheap, and that these guys were just doing it for a paycheck. And they you did. thought this? You say in the book you thought the Stooges were second rate too. I I I believe that people who do nothing but repeat the same routines again and again and again, are, are guilty uh, <laughs> of a sin in comedy, which is not to expand and grow and, and try different things. Gilbert, don't take that personally. Yeah. <laughs> no, Gil, Gilbert, Gil, Gilbert is always, Gilbert will never go with the easy. Gilbert will always strive to do more. That's the That's truth. That's what I admire about it. And, you know what, I, and before, before, you know, I follow you on Instagram. Gilbert, and, and I got to tell you, having known you now for like 30 years, not very well, but to see the pictures with your kids on Instagram, you look so goddamn happy. Uh, it, it's really, it, it really, it's very heartwarming to see. It, it kind of humanizes you. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go that far, Brian. Yeah, if such a thing is possible. <laughs> Did you see the documentary about Gilbert? I've, I'm aware of it. I have not seen it. Oh, you it should yet. see it. it. Well, it does it does a fine job of humanizing him, and that's oh, a tall it's a tall Gilbert. order. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So write that down. <laughs> the documentary's Gilbert. <laughs> and, and where could I find this? <laughs> where documentaries are sold, of course. <laughs> it's worth it, and uh, yeah, it's fun, and it's a, it's a different side of him. There's a, one of the things that touched me about the book, and we, we really have to plug this book, and I sent Gilbert uh, uh, the, the galley or the PDF that you shared with us, and it, 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 when we described it as eye-popping or, or uh, an eyeful in the, in the introduction, we weren't kidding. I mean, there are, these are, and the photographs are wonderful, by the way. Let's yes. shout out uh, Joe, Joe Pellegrini yes. and Ooh, the art a... direction of Samuel Herndon, because it's a beautiful-looking book. Thank you, thank you. And I'm very proud to announce that uh, here, here is an exclusive for your show uh, that uh, come we'll uh, early January 2022, uh, My Life and Toys will be available, uh, being published by Insight Editions. And hopefully in the next couple months, people will have a chance to begin pre-ordering this. Uh, and if you're a collector, a, a person who loves film, uh, loves comedy, uh, who loves smiling figures. Oh, everything faces. is in there. I mean, I thought it was going to be toys. When I saw the book, My Life and Toys, I thought, oh, he's a toy collector. I didn't count on, you know, postcards and signs and, and, and product mascots and, and, uh, and soda bottles and cameras and typewriters and wristwatches and cereal boxes. I mean, you collect everything. Yes, and, well, and, that, and that's, that, that's why I'm not a very good collector. Most people collect one thing and they collect <laughs> the best of it. And I just I, I'm I'm all over the place, but I I love too many things, and, and it's it's a very visual and visceral, and I see something and I have to have it. Yeah, and do you yeah, do you own your own town to keep all these things in? <laughs> no, unlike a lot of people I know, my wife, uh, you know, she she's allowed me to uh, uh, fill our house uh, stem to stern. Uh, with, with all this stuff, and and it's and it's a bright and fun place to live, and, and that's an understanding that. spouse, Brian. 
Yes. <laughs> no, I know most guys, you know, they got their Batmobiles. I, I can only show them at the office, you know. <laughs> what, what, is the, what is the rough number? I mean, it's, it's numbering in the, in the hundreds. It, it, it's thousands, uh, thousands of pieces. Thousands, thousands and thousands of pieces. of pieces. Yes. I have no idea. You know, I, I, I have much too much, and it's about time to start, to start uh, thinning things out. A bit, I think. <laughs> it's it's really a wonderful. Co- I mean, I, I just I, I called my wife into the room just to see the typewriters, ah. and this and I'm a I'm a cereal box guy. I'm wearing my Quisp T-shirt. This yes, is an audio yes. an audio podcast, of course, but I'm wearing my Quisp <laughs> T-shirt as an as a way to pay uh, respect. And I'm wearing to, uh, a Happy Days, <laughs> and he's wearing a Happy Days shirt. But I mean, it's there's there's artwork, and I said there's the lenticular rings, which I used to collect. Yeah. And uh, and the trading cards and the comic books and then there's a there's a Superman and a Batman and then and it's also the history of of, of as I said uh, American advertising. Yeah, uh, like I said, we we I collect a lot of different things and uh, I think the difference between this and most books, which like collections, are very focused, is it gives you a very wide look at the the things that for the past hundred years have fascinated us uh, oh, in, in our culture. You'd be yeah. the person to ask this because yeah. I remember it very well as a kid. In the back of comic books, uh, you could pay for a live monkey. Yeah. To be sa- yes. Yes. Yeah, Brian, I'm sure Brian it arrived flinch. dead. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I heard that. Yeah. I heard yeah. uh, that the monkey... I think monkey they were Campuch, or whatever those are called. Yes, yeah. yes. And, Cappuccine. Uh, they... Capucci. The monkey would arrive either dead or dying. Yeah. <laughs> and, and alligators, too. They would yep. send you baby alligators. This, this was it, a wonderful world we, we grew up in, huh? Yeah, incredible. And, and, and in Miami, they had, you know, at the gift shop at the airport, it was all these dead baby alligators in sunglasses and Hawaiian oh. shirts lie, lying on lounge oh. chairs or posed with cameras and baseball gloves. <laughs> It was just horrible. It was just animal abuse. I have to read a little passage from the book, Brian. I found this very touching. You got to meet the great Chuck Jones. Yes. And you were sitting across from him, and you said there was a, there was a gleam in the man's eye that you could see that, that he, he seemed like a child. He did not seem to you. He had all that exuberance and all that youthful energy. And you go on to point out that people like him and Walter Lance and Hanna-Barbera and Charles Schultz and Will Eisner and Carl Barks, that all of these people— uh, who chose this, this this way to make a living, managed to to work forever, and and in a way find a fountain of youth. You make the you make the uh, you make the statement in the book that humor. You believe humor may be one of the true fountains of youth. I, I thought that I was touching. That, 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 well, these people spent their lives doing little more than trying to make children laugh. Yeah, and and were amazingly successful, and they built amazing successful lives and, and families from, from that. And, and I always look at them as an example uh, of people who never lost uh, the innocence and the joy uh, or, or their sense of purpose. I mean, Chuck Jones, to have dinner with Chuck Jones was uh, an incredible experience because you don't realize just how wise people can be and how far flung their interests and knowledge can be. Mm-hmm. And to think about him taking all of all of those influences and information and and trying and just kind of shaping them like clay in, in, into the frenetic comedy 
uh, that touched on opera and classical music and outer space, uh, uh, sci-fi uh, and, and westerns. And, you know, it, it, he, his tastes ran the gamut. And, and he taught us a lot uh, about how to enjoy life. And, and and the light never dimmed in him. I mean, when yeah. we met him, he, he was uh, I don't know eighty six, eighty seven, and uh, he, he you could tell he was he was looking forward to the next day. That's great. <laughs> you say too that you said that these individuals found lifetimes of joy pursuing the ability to think like a child. Yeah, it sets profound. You know, comedians uh, seem to live a long time, too. I mean, look at how long Burl lived and George Burns and Bob Hope and Bob comedy Hope writers. Bob Hope was 103, for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> comedy writers live forever, too. Uh, well, just the ones on your show of shows. But I think, I think, you know, these are people who spend their lives sitting in rooms, uh, eating deli food and, uh, and, and trying to make each other laugh. And uh, and I think that's a very worthwhile way to spend your life. And uh, rather than being aggravated and fighting with people and and you're kind of insulated, you know, the writer's room is is is, is it's a unique institution in place. Uh, and, and that's where and that, that's why I teach today. We, we do writer's rooms and write sitcoms and try and mm-hmm. kind of spread the. The kind of merging of structure and improvisational thinking uh, that go that go into creating these things, and and sometimes the the, the joy really comes out. Good for you in paying it back, by the way. And uh, you know, of course, the book opens with you talking about how growing up watching Benny and Burns and Allen and all these people, you didn't realize that you were getting a comedy class. You didn't realize you were being taught structure and character. Did, did and anybody? Nobody. I mean... No, no, certainly not. It it always uh, I I always think back and thinking that. The greatest film school in the country uh, was your living room. Yeah. You turn on the TV, there'd be movies from like the 20s and then followed by variety shows and then a movie from all eras, all different types of things you were exposed to. Well, because the station, let's face it, uh, they didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> yes. That's right. And it wasn't until 1955 when uh, the studios finally even got into the TV business. And then there was just Warner Brothers. So they were just plucking libraries. You know, like Flash Gordon played on Sunday mornings in Chicago forever, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, on at 6 a.m. And, uh, and I noticed, like, I think Channel 5... Had all the Warner Brothers, Bogart, Cagney, and Robinson. And then I think Nine would have like, you know, Cheney and Lugosi and Karloff. (laughs) Yeah, they bought different packages. (laughs) I remember the days before cable, I remember that on New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve, they would roll out some Marx Brothers movies. And what a big deal that was. That you'd (laughs) wait all year. There was no VHS you right. know, you, you'd wait all year to see horse feathers uh, and it, to it, see it, monkey business. It took me 13 years to see all 13 films. Wow. Uh, <laughs> there you go. So now, now you can buy the two box sets and, yeah. and be uh, done, done. <laughs> we, we, we had hardships in those days. Can you, any, any words about the, about the late, great Charles Grodin, who we just lost? Oh, uh, yeah. No, um, I am very, very grateful to, to him. He, uh, the whole the whole Beethoven thing could have been a huge disaster. 
uh, on, on many fronts, but he chose to trust me and, and collaborate. And Ivan Reitman, uh, you know, in, in, in his sweet way, said, if something doesn't work, fix it. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that led to uh, a lot of him. We had Bonnie Hunt and Charles mm-hmm. Grodin and Stanley Tucci and Oliver Platt and Dean Jones. Dean Jones, Patricia yeah. Heaton and, and David Duchovny. And, uh, you know, I would say a, a substantial amount of the movie was just made up on the spot. And and wow. uh, it, it drove our, our wonderful script girl uh, mad, but <laughs> but it, it worked. We created an environment where where everyone contributed, and we worked things out. I had no rehearsal; I didn't have time to storyboard anything. We just kind of went by the seat of our pants, and that was uh, that was that forced me to to get it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and luckily, you know, we're, we're, you know, I wasn't the director. I didn't hire the crew. Right. They weren't happy to see me. <laughs> the person they were loyal to <laughs> was back in Texas or something. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it, it turned out to be a, a, a great experience. And, you know, and Ivan and his people, uh, all very talented people, you know, Michael Chinich put that cast together and Ivan, you know, the first time we, our music editor did a temp score, he threw the guy out and spent the next day taking the, the cues that we, had, that we had picked for the guy to use and recut them himself, him and Sheldon Kahn, the Academy Award-winning editor. And you just learned, I mean, here's how you do a, here's how you do a temp score, right? And it was right there. And, and for someone who was still very inexperienced, you know, Beethoven was the second feature meeting I'd ever taken <laughs> You, you're, you're clearly someone who doesn't believe in the adage, don't work with children and, and, and animals. No, I've made a career out of it. <laughs> uh, but I love working with you. When I, when I got to Bad News Bears, I discovered how much I loved working with children and working with people like, like Bill Asher, who directed Bewitched uh, oh, and, and William Asher. I Love Lucy. And he would put an apple box down uh, next to the lens and sit eight-year-old Corey Feldman down at da 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 Good. Try again. Da-da. Just keep it rolling. Cut and print. Moving on. <laughs> and uh, and you know how we encouraged these kids to to do better and to really see what they could do and challenge themselves all the time and to be on and to know what was expected of them. And, and mm-hmm. it was you know working with people like Jerry Parrott, Howard Storm directed a lot of my early. Oh, episodes. love. We had Howard here. Yes, no, yeah, I love we love Howard. Howard. You work uh, with some wonderful Milt Josephsberg is another uh, name. Yes. You work with M- some Milt, wonderful behind the scenes people. Yeah, well, Gary Marshall, Jerry Paris. Gary, when Gary Marshall started to uh, uh, kind of relieve himself of his TV obligations, he never fully left, but you know, not he wasn't doing the day to day, and but he wanted the people who taught him what he'd learned, and mm-hmm. so he had Harry Crane who did the honeymooners. Harry Crane, uh, Gil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and Milt Josephsberg there to kind of mentor young people like me. And, and, you know, and that extended beyond, you know, there was a lot of stories I remember on Kay Kaiser's summer show in 1947. <laughs> there was a lot of that. But there was also a lot of, a lot of things about, you know, how to have a career and, and raise a family and things yeah. that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Well, you and, know, reading about Gary in your book, you know, as a comedy writer myself, what one is immediately envious of of <laughs> of the, the the environment that he creates. 
and 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 how we, how in, intent he is on turning everything into a family, running running it like that, and and uh, yes, and letting people days. shine and and not let, not letting ego get in the way. But also also sharing the spotlight. Yeah. Every year sharing, on Happy Days, every character quote had a show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that that he 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 knew how to keep people happy. He knew how to engage them as a group. The Happy Day softball team is is a magnificent example uh, uh, of his team building skills. Uh, that that the Sunday softball team that he wanted to cast sure. young guys and and Ron taught Henry how to play. And Tom Bosley was a baseball nut. And 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 we got Scott Bayo who was an all all Brooklyn little leaguer. And Ted McGinley was an all American water polo player. And we played as an opening act. For 27 major league games, we did charity yeah, uh, games the, uh, and, and the Orange Bowl and, and, the, in the, book. And, and the Superdome and USO tours to Germany and Okinawa and Japan. Uh, and, uh, you know, we only lost like a handful of games. And half the time we were on the field with people we didn't deserve to be. You know, you go to mm-hmm. Philadelphia in front of 57,000 people and there's four N- ex-NBA players, Richie Ashburn from the Hall of Fame. Sure. Is in, is in left Center field. Fielder. And it's like, we, we tied them two to two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what, what writer, and you were 23, and, you know, again, speaking for myself, what writer doesn't want to be in that environment and, and no, work, for, uh, work was, for employers like that? It, it, you know, and be in a room like that. It was a clinic in how to... And how and how to be successful, and then what to do when yeah. you were successful, and how to treat people. Yeah, he was a guest to, that got away for us. We would have really uh, well, loved to have well, had him yeah, here. Well, you know, there are many accolades uh, around, including his sister Ronnie, who was the associate producer of Happy Days for many years. Uh, Scotty is a great uh, storyteller about his dad, and working with him in the later years. And Lowell Gans, you should have those guys on. We will. Uh, it, would be, it would be a great show. Um, we should have Gans but, but, and Mandel. But Gary, you know. Gary, Gary was, you know, he brought things out in people. And he had, his, his funeral was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. You know, I mean, Bette Midler sang, Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts spoke, Henry, <laughs> yeah. Henry spoke. Uh, and it ended with the, with the Northwestern marching band coming out from backstage, uh, wow. playing the Happy Days theme, marching up the aisle. <laughs> An- another, uh, be- another beloved figure. You know, but a showman, a showman. You know, yeah. he, he was. And where did he learn? From Carl Reiner, from working for Danny Thomas early yeah. on and, and doing right. the Lucy show. Right. He learned, he, he learned at, at, at the feet of great people, and, and he took what he learned there and, and tried to, you know, make it his own. You've had a wonderful journey, my friend, and you're, an, and you're a terrific guest. Why, I, why thank you. I, I you? can't believe it took us this long to have you. I'm well, you've also... only had—I mean, you've had Michael Oliver before me. That's okay. <laughs> that, was, that was Gilbert's doing. No, no, get the kid who get the kid who's on the Geek Squad, not not the guy who's devoted his life to comedy. No, no, no. Uh, no, he's a good—he's a good guy. We did a, a, a for the John Ritter Foundation. We did a photo shoot a couple years ago, and Michael was there. Ivy Ann Schwan, the little girl from Problem Child, uh, and, and Amy, and, and Scott and Larry. And, and I told him, you know, that he, he had gotten a bad rap as a kid, that he was the only child actor I've ever worked with who would read books between takes, who was always prepared, always knew his lines, and, and, and was very, very disciplined. And, and uh, there was problems with his family and the studio that I think derailed what could have been a more promising career. But he was a real good kid, and he's a good, mm-hmm. really good man now. Yeah, it seems like he's nice. Yeah, yeah. And, we thought we liked having him. What's nice about Michael Oliver's life now 
is, you know, he accepts that he used to be in showbiz. But now he's just like, he works with computers and he, uh, he's, he just, he's clean. He's not a junkie. He's not a drug addict. Like all these. Like the cast of different strokes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. He's totally, you know, like normal. Yes. And and that's wondrous. Uh, Given, given what he was, went through in the tsunami uh, that he faced, and I'm sure... Don't use know, that word on this show, Brian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure he couldn't go to the mall for years without people, you know, hey, Junior! You know? Yeah, I bet. Gilbert, if there's a problem, Child 9, will you be in it? Ah, uh, sure. What the fuck else am I doing? <laughs> I tried to reboot it a couple of years ago. Problem Child, the new beginning, and Gilbert would have been, uh, you know, the person who, in each film, dropped him off with a new family. To, 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 to a new rest. beginning. And he would have the thread. The thread. We're going to have to direct people too to your Instagram account, which is also similarly eye popping. Uh, so, and, uh, we, uh, Greg Parra, one of our social media directors, is a toy collector, and he has told he just told me he spent days on your Instagram page. Oh, well, there's a- so it's a, it's a treat for collectors. So is the book, My Life and Toys, coming in 2022. Uh, Brian, we could go on for hours. Well. I, I, I don't have much water left here. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, make, make people buy the book, too, because, uh, uh, well, yeah, not make them. They're going to want to buy the book. But there's also a great Captain Kangaroo story, which we won't tell. Ah, uh, there's pl- yes. pl- plenty of anecdotes in the book, and it's, it's, a, it's a page turner, and it is, it is beautiful to look at. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, 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 I can't wait to put it on my coffee table. And, yes, make Gilbert pay for his. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's been it's been too long, Gilbert. Frank, you, you're great. Love meeting with you. Thank you for handling all the details involved. Oh, of course, in this. of course. We want to thank Land and Aristotle too, and our friends at Starburns Audio for bringing Brian in and and uh, opening up the studio for us, which they've now done two weeks in a row uh, to give us a shot at at quality audio. And uh, and Brian, uh, you know, so much. You've done so much. You've met everybody. I mean, you know. From Groucho to Captain Kangaroo to Chuck Jones to Buffalo Bob, what an adventure. We didn't even talk about Barbara Billingsley and Beaver, but we'll have you back. That would be great. I'd love to. What a ride. (laughs) So, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to the man who, during the making of Problem Child 2, taught me... I had to take it in the face. <laughs> He's not going to let it go. Brian LeVent. What was that about somebody who keeps doing the same bit over and over again? <laughs> <laughs> and happy birthday, Scott Alexander. Yes, indeed. All oh, right, happy Brian. Happy birthday, Scott. We'll see you soon, pal. All right. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was great fun. Bye-bye. <laughs>